0: Welcome to the Recappery, the History Chicks Media Recap Emporium. In (laughs) case you are new, and welcome to you, if you are, I'm Beckett Graham. And I'm Susan Vollenweiter. And normally, we do a podcast called The History Chicks, and we are in, I believe, is it year nine? So Uh we've been doing it for a while, and that is the place where we cover women, real and fictional, from history but our side project of covering movies of historical interest interested us so much that we decided to turn it into a second show and therefore here we are today we are covering the crown season three and without further ado let's begin this is season
1: three episode one the Olding is what it's called. The Netflix synopsis is this. Elizabeth grows concerned as Labor Party leader Harold Wilson becomes prime minister amid anti-monarchy sentiment and rumors
0: of his possible KGB ties. Dun, dun, dun. <laughs> I, um, I think I'm just going to call this. I often have a very, very short synopsis. I'm going to call this um, change is inevitable and uncomfortable. (laughs) That's pretty close. Yeah, that's accurate. We open on the silhouette of Queen Elizabeth, who is wearing the state diadem. There is a title card that says 1964.
1: Now, this is a still shot. The first five seconds, nothing at all happens. You think you're looking at a still picture. And then at the five second point, that's when it says 1964 on a card. That particular frame, holds for another 10 seconds. (laughs) I was like, come on, let's get on with it. Let's get on with it on one hand. And on the other, it really set the tone that George IV state diadem. It's a very ornate crown. Uh, It was originally ordered in 1820 for George IV's coronation, but since him, it's only been worn by queens. And our queen wears it
0: once a year to open parliament. She also wore it famously on the way to her own coronation. It has 1,333 diamonds in it, but is still lighter than the crown she usually wears when she gives her speech. She she goes to the place in this diadem that she's wearing and then she switches to a crown. But this year, uh, and also in 2017, I think she felt it was too heavy. So it simply sat on a cushion beside her doing its office of, hello, I am royalty, while she wore the lighter over 1,000 diamond <laughs> crown. So you know this thing's got to be heavy. Um, so it's become yeah. this symbol of partnership between Parliament and the Crown. So that's Mm -hmm. how we open. And we pick up right after the actions of season two. And I would almost encourage you, even if you've watched it, to go back at least on the last episode of season two, which we did cover and we'll provide you a link. But it's a pretty seamless transition, although the faces change radically. So the fact that there's been (laughs) almost two years in between season two and season three, refresh your memory. I think that
1: we both agreed that that was the finest episode of that particular season, too. So if you're going to watch any of them, watch that one. And it did end with the baptism of Prince
0: Edward. It was in May of 1964. And the timeline is a little wonky. I just want to say they conveniently put things in different orders. And that's okay. I think, to tell a good story. So
1: there was a line that she had. In the last episode, she was talking to Harold MacMillan, who was her former prime minister, and he was stepping down. And she's going over this gaggle of prime ministers that she's had during her reign, and she called them a confederacy of quitters. And the prime minister at this particular moment was the guy that she appointed right after Harold MacMillan. Two vehicles go through the gates at Buckingham Palace. A red mail truck drives through, followed by a black sedan. The gates close, and the cars proceed to wherever the VIPs get out of their cars, beyond the gates.
0: That one carport always seems to be where they end up. And the camera seems to linger on the flag that is flying on the roof. That is a pattern. The camera will linger over and over during this episode. Mm -hmm. And I think, oh, we must look at that flag. So the flag from outside is called the royal standard, which is always up when the queen is in residence. There's two sections with the gold lions of England, one with a red lion for Scotland and one with a harp for Ireland. I think it's hilarious that when they're in Scotland, there's two Scotland squares and one England square. (laughs) It's the only place it's different. Um, We don't want to antagonize them historically. Um, So um, it's never, ever, and half-mast, even when the monarch dies, because what that flag represents is the continuity of the crown, the institution of the monarchy. And the transitions, of course, are instant and automatic. You know, the king is dead, long live the king, that kind of Mm -hmm. thing. So I think maybe the lingering was a metaphor Even though the crown is in danger, you know, it shall endure. It will never fade. That's the only thing I can think of for hovering on that flag. Like, don't be scared. We'll be all right. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, that's as good as anything I could come up with. Sounds good to me. (laughs) So then we see the footmen leading a procession of black suited men who are carrying curiously flat boxes up that famous staircase.
1: Yeah, I think there's a joke in here about how many men does it take to carry these boxes. And they're like the size of a pizza box. And there's four men carrying those. And then there's two guys carrying another larger wooden box by handles. But again, it doesn't look like it's terribly heavy. So there's two footmen, a butler, and then these six gentlemen following them up that staircase.
0: Then we see an above shot of a footman walking a couple of corgis, obviously, off to the meeting. Yeah,
1: it's again, this is another one of those
0: visual things that they use a lot, this
1: overhead shot. And the action goes through the frame. We don't follow the action with the camera. So the footman and the two corgis go from the right of the screen to the left. Queen Elizabeth has corgis. We all know that. However, in 1964, she had three corgis and not two. Heather not that I can't and say. Honey and Sugar. Is that right? <laughs> there you go. Uh, you know what? I didn't even write their names down. I'm so very impressed. I do. I can tell you that she bred corgis until about 2002 with the same bloodline. The last one, whose name was Willow? Isn't that a pretty name for dog? Died in April of 2018. That was the 14th generation that she had bred of corgis.
0: Also, I just want to end on a joyful note. Fans of the History Chicks will know how obsessed I am with Harry Potter. And the Queen has a lab named Gryffindor. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. (laughs) So now the men, the Corgis very important that they attend this meeting, and the queen, uh-huh. regard the portraits they brought. Those men and those corgis were so balanced in this
1: shot. There's equal amounts on either side. So there's the left side group of guys, the right side group
0: of guys, and the two corgis on the floor at the front. And when she walked in and stopped right between the corgis, I thought, Ms. Coleman, stop between the corgis, please. That's where your shot is. <laughs> <laughs> that's that exactly what happened
1: and this is the first time that we finally get to see our new queen and she's wearing an abysmal mauve suit
0: my husband <laughs> was watching this with me and he said oh oh ladies fashions of this era were so unflattering
1: yeah and she does those frumpies pretty heavily
0: <laughs> those frumpies <laughs>
1: So one of the guys in the group is kind of selling these portraits on her, kind of telling her what she's supposed to think about them. And he's saying things like, um, it's an elegant transition from young woman to, and she says, without missing a beat, old bat. She says, eld
0: bet. (laughs) Is literally what she says. E L D B E T. I wanna say that
1: Eldbet is only thirty-eight years old. I have this freak out problem about the her age and
0: how she's aging in this and she's supposed to be old and she's only thirty-eight. You know, we mm-hmm. should probably go back a second and explain what are these portraits, even they're designs for stamps. And the director addresses the elephant on the left. We have clearly got Claire Foy. Uh (laughs) And on the right, we clearly have Olivia Coleman. Queen Elizabeth is four times unhappy with what she sees on the right. (laughs) Which is kind of crappy for Olivia (laughs) Coleman. Like, I do look so much worse than Claire Foy. I mean, how how dare they? I
1: think they made her look that way. I mean... Claire Foy was like baby Claire Foy. And that particular portrait that they use of her, it was supposed to be Elizabeth's right as she took the reign. That's the portrait that was on the coins and the stamps until 1967, which is ahead of our timeline. We should probably not even point out the timeline wonkiness anymore because it really gets confusing.
0: <laughs> well, I don't know. I think it's interesting to know that we've kind of pulled things in for narrative economy. Mm -hmm. And I do love this
1: scene so much because we get to say goodbye to Claire Foy with the beautiful stamp on the left and hello to Olivia with the regal stamp on the right.
0: And it is kind of an elegant way to tell the audience, look, we know they don't look exactly the same. You just have to buy in. So this poor guy, this poor guy tries to sell it. (laughs) I don't know if he drew the short straw or what his deal was he you know here we have the young and the slightly older everybody's just <laughs> holding their breasts like ah! um also he says the postmaster is very happy with this and she says the postmaster is a build fist la <laughs> She also said something else in this scene that I just loved. She's
1: talking about aging, and she says age is rarely kind to anyone. That's true. That's it. Yep. You just got to move on. Let's go.
0: Poor men. Poor Queen Elizabeth. It's not going very well. No, no. So we have the same old title sequence on the surface. Oh, what do we? It has a lot of different names on it. No, here's the thing. We knew that was going to happen, so it was always part of the scenario, part of the vision that they were going to recast after season two. And here is where I would like to start my active campaign, since they're also going to recast for season five. Can we pressure Helen Mirren to take up the mantle, literally take up the mantle, of Queen (laughs) Elizabeth for season five? Let's just start talking to her now. That would be perfect. I think that would be great. Mm -hmm. So let's just talk maybe about the top three changes for now. We have many many opportunities to talk about the rest of the title sequence. So first, Olivia Coleman as Queen Elizabeth II, most recently seen as Queen Anne in the favorite. I saw. Did you like the movie? I didn't. I did. I hated that movie. Although I love <laughs> Rachel Weisz and I love Emma Stone, so I don't know how that happened, but I absolutely loathed almost everything about that movie. But I love her in Fleabag as the stepmother. Yeah, (laughs) she's great. I mean, horrible character, but great in it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. She's won more awards than uh, we can list in film and, and TV and on stage. And she was given an award earlier this year, not knighted, exactly. Unfortunately, the award she received, the CBE, is just below where you can call yourself Dame, Olivia Coleman. Um, But she did
1: get an honor. Well, maybe after she does her two seasons on here, the queen will up her to a dame.
0: (laughs) Maybe. Also, she has brown eyes, which is clearly not the blue eyes. And just like the boy that played Harry Potter, he could not tolerate the green contacts that were called for in the text. And people were full of consternation. Olivia Coleman has brown eyes and could not tolerate the blue contacts. I don't understand that because I've never had a problem with contacts, but I imagine many do.
1: <laughs> She's also a little taller than uh, Claire Foy was. Claire Foy was 5'4". Queen Elizabeth is 5'4", and Olivia Colman is 5'7". So there's a little bit of physical differences. But Another newbie is Tobias Menzies, who's playing Philip. I only know him from Outlander, and I never finished watching the series. It didn't hold my attention. But he's a good guy and a bad guy, depending on where you are in the timeline. Like if you're in the past, he's really bad. And if you're in the future, he's really good. So that's Hmm. the only place I know I'm from. And in my head, he's always swarmy. He's bad. Smarmy? Smarmy? Is that Uh the word? Swarmy. Smarmy. The things we're learning today.
0: (laughs) (laughs) He's also in Game of Thrones, but I don't believe either of us have watched Game of Thrones. Uh, I am still trying to hold out for having read the books before I see the movie. And I see that as a light at an ever increasingly long tunnel. (laughs) So I don't know if I will ever watch Game of Thrones, or maybe I'll compromise my principles and go ahead and watch it. And you know what? At first, this guy's performance irritated the poo out of me. But now that I've seen it 4.5 times already today, (laughs) um, I am realizing he, this guy, Tobias, is probably far closer to real Philip than old Matt Smith was. I had just got used to Matt Smith, his delivery and, and things hmm.
1: Yeah. No, I completely agree with you. I had such a hard time going from Doctor Who to Prince Philip with Matt Smith. And this one, it was easy. So I thought that was perfect, perfect casting.
0: I think his manner matches more with the public persona of the real Prince Philip. So mm-hmm. maybe the real Prince Philip would annoy the crap out of me, too. But I apologize to Mr. Tobias for my first impressions. And I think I'm going to like him in this role pompous and I didn't like him. So that's great. <laughs> A plus. <laughs> Yahoo.
1: Another perfect casting newbie is Helena Bonham Carter.
0: Yay. Speaking of Harry Potter, she's your favorite Bellatrix. She's also my hair twin. Bellatrix Lestrange, unfortunately, is my <laughs> hair twin. <laughs> um, she was also, though, known for um, rocking the corset in most of her early work. And she didn't let that go in Bellatrix's case either, but she was in Howard's End, kind of dreamy and ponderous, but I loved it. She had played Lady Jane Grey. She was in The King's Speech. And she played Anne Boleyn in 2003's
1: Henry VIII movie. So she's played all of these royals already. I love it.
0: Also a CBE, so not a dame yet. She said in an interview that she was more terrified of doing justice to Vanessa Kirby's performance as Princess Margaret <laughs> from seasons one and two, which won Vanessa Kirby a BAFTA and less concerned with doing justice to the real Princess Margaret. However, she really, really got into her research. There is, and we'll have to link you to a Graham Norton episode. Graham Norton's a talk show in Britain, and Olivia Coleman and Helena Bonham Carter were on this TV show. And Helena was saying how much preparation she'd done, including consulting a medium to see if she could get Princess Margaret to show up and show her how to smoke properly and that <laughs> kind of thing. On and on and on about all the things she did and studied. And then she looked at Olivia Coleman and said, and you just showed up and did nothing and you're perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so it was really good. It was a very companionable set, seems like. Everyone was uh-huh. very professional and... Um, came at it from their own perspective. So I thought that was lovely. That is great. I think she's a grittier
1: Princess Margaret this season. Like she's like <laughs> rougher around
0: the edges, I guess, maybe. Agreed. Grittier and um darker, I think, as is inevitable in Princess Margaret's story. All right. So let's move on with the recap. Let's call this exposition breakfast. Philip and Elizabeth are watching TV. If you have
1: mysophonia. I believe that's how you pronounce it, severe reaction to noises. You're going to just need to mute your television set because the first thing we're going to see is Elizabeth, quote, making her breakfast at the table and she's scraping the butter onto the toast and she's clicking her spoon as she's dropping jam onto that toast and she's stirring it. And Philip at the other end of the table, who is not eating, who's watching television that's only like two feet away from him, he has to have somebody come over and turn the volume up. That's a rich
0: remote right there. <laughs> I know, really, and that, he
1: doesn't do it h- high enough. He's like waving him up higher, like turn it up higher. My mom wouldn't let us sit that close to the TV back in the seventies. Some gamma rays, I don't know,
0: something. It's not so, safe. Don't sit that close. Your mom is not the boss of Prince Philip. That's right. Yeah. I think it's actually a sign of growth that he is now an old married man who does not pay attention to the angry toasting because (laughs) he knows do not engage. She's obviously come from this meeting where she saw an unflattering picture of herself and she is fixing to battle and I won't do it. (laughs) so he diverts her attention by talking about what he is seeing on his tv it is the election for the
1: new prime minister and philip is not really excited about one of the candidates because he is very very anti-monarchy
0: and i want you to think back to philip's childhood they'll want us gone he says which is a big legitimate fear from the nephew of a deposed king who became homeless when people said no more kings in his country. It colored the rest of his entire life. So I think he's perhaps not being hysterical, but he's seeing the winds of that same scenario playing out in his new home, too. He's not at the point of taking action yet, but he is watching it with an eagle eye, like like one would if you'd been through it before. And he relates to his wife some rumors about the front runner.
1: Yeah, I, I love that his first thing to do is just to go to some conspiracy theories, that the Russians were involved, that Wilson is a um, KGB spy that he's an agent and the Russians got him at a very early age and they put him into these positions that the Russians even poisoned the man who was set to become the nominee so that Wilson could become it. He's got
0: this crazy theory and she's not buying it. He reveals to her his uh, operational name, Olding. And then Elizabeth just says, if you know it and your chum knows it, MI5 probably knows it. (laughs) And (laughs) obviously they've investigated or they wouldn't have let him go further. At the very beginning, I was like patting myself on the back. I'm like, olding. Oh, that's
1: just a clever way to say getting old. They're covering that right in the first scene. No, (laughs) not at all. This is where the title of the episode comes from. His supposed KGB name.
0: So Philip Sowe's doubt and she starts to get kind of upset. How will it be to have a prime minister one cannot trust? Simultaneously, she's reading a note that's been delivered that Winston Churchill has had yet another stroke. Yeah, she's really
1: worried about him. She's going to go visit him later. But on the television, Wilson is saying only the state should have this much power. So he's like telling everybody that he is going to do exactly what Philip says he was going to do, is just get rid of the monarchy.
0: That what? was not a good breakfast. Now <laughs> we have our first look very briefly at the new Princess Margaret though we really don't see her face. All we hear is her wake up call. We're in a very fancy bedroom and
1: the phone is ringing and there's a woman asleep on the bed and all she does is there's a close up of the phone. She reaches her hand out which still has a diamond bracelet on it, not like a nighttime one. It was like a big, chunky one.
0: A nighttime up the res- diamond bracelet. Well, that would be like
1: a lighter weight one. This is like super <laughs> chunky, like a lighter weight one that wouldn't dig into you. I don't know. I got the impression that she just went to bed drunk from the night before, is the impression I got. Let's Go
0: talk about this. <laughs> I just think... It is interesting that you would assume that people have night-night jewelry. Don't you wear it jewelry to your bed? I mean, that you wore during the day,
1: some of it? Okay, I have jewelry that if I wear it during the day, I will wear it to bed. I have other jewelry that I won't wear to bed because it hurts, like earrings that are too big or rings that
0: are too tight or something. I guess You're... I haven't taken off my wedding ring. Right. Okay, well... I guess I am in the lower classes. I don't happen to have a multi-strand diamond bracelet that I view as pajamas. But all righty. <laughs> good times. So anyway, back to the telephone that's ringing. She reaches over and all
1: you see is a hand pick it up. On the other end, you say, good morning, your highness. And
0: then she just drops the receiver down and hangs up on them. I that guarantee it. you the next word in his head, if not out of his mouth, starts with a B. <laughs> And I couldn't help but not notice that the ashtray next to the phone was packed. It was really full. And she has people to clean that every day. So that is a lot of smoking. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we see Tony Armstrong Jones, and also we see the way the wind is blowing.
1: Tony is in his studio, which just looks like a big garage, and he is sawing metal and smoking. So it's really loud and just manly, sawing a piece of metal. A servant comes in and says, lunch is at one. And without even looking up, Tony's like, nope, tell her I'm not coming. Like, forget it. He's out in the garage doing his thing, working, and she's lazing around in bed. A bed, by the way, that neither looks egalitarian, which is what she was going for in the remodel of their apartments last season, Mm. but
0: um, also didn't look like it had room for him. (laughs) Well, that's a sign, isn't it? Well, but the yeah. upper classes didn't often share a bed, did they? I don't know. We've talked about this before. I don't know. So what he's building uh, in the interest of just being completionists here, he is, you'll see some triangles that are sitting around behind him and you'll see them finished a little bit later. And I'll point it out to you. But what he is building is um, a design for the aviary at the London Zoo, which did in fact get built and is currently, as of two thousand in the process of being refurbished so they're going to keep it so that is what he's building in case you're wondering and so something actually useful and Mm -hmm. um, that people probably paid him money for well when we
1: first met him he was an inventor that was one of the things he did on the side so that he's continuing to do his passion projects but I guess the whole point of the scene is to say that their marriage is very rocky that they're living two very different lives
0: Well, in the next scene, Princess Margaret proves to everyone that she is not a morning person. (laughs) <laughs> she's technically up in that she is
1: sitting up, but she's still in bed. She's still in her jammies. She's got a super fancy cigarette holder going. She's got a dog on her lap. She's still in bed. And the maid comes in. She's obviously scared. She's very young. And Margaret doesn't even look up. She just says, who are you? And the maid is like, uh, I, I'm new.
0: And Margaret's like, really not very kind. She says, I'm assuming new isn't your name. I mean, how nasty. I don't even know why she cares about names because the next question she asks is, where's the other one? The the fat one. <laughs> you didn't even know the name of the lady who was here before. Why do you care what Violet's name is? <laughs> That's right. <laughs>
1: And the fat one, I don't want to call her that, whatever her name was that left, she left, according
0: to the new maid, from nervous exhaustion. Gee, I wonder why. Also, I bet Princess Margaret wishes she could leave from nervous exhaustion. How the lower classes are so much luckier than she is. They can just vaporize out of this (laughs) life when they're done with it. Well, she has a pillow on her bed that says, it's not easy being a princess. Does
1: she really? It's embroidered.
0: Otter bed, yeah. Uh, it's hilarious. Okay, well, <laughs> t- Tony's all done with it, princess. And he drives away on his fabulous motorcycle. And scenes of that and his journey from above are interspersed with Margaret traveling to his studio to try to roust him out to have an argument about going to lunch.
1: This is another one of those visual things that visual continuity, I guess we can call it. It's a real close up of his feet on the motorcycle, just starting the motorcycle and driving through the streets and driving away. And then here comes Margaret. She's just storming down in this absolutely fabulous, flowing, long, deep purple and white robe that matches the nightgown she had underneath and these extraordinarily high shoes and that same chunky bracelet. And she just goes to the garage door, his studio door, and she's just banging on it, trying to get his attention. And he is just long gone.
0: There is a major event happening outside in the real world. This is Tony's Perspective. The country may very well change entirely overnight, and he is a photographer by trade, and he wants to go out and capture the event in real time in the city. There's no more days. You can't do it later. This is the day. He's going out to do it, and no one's stopping him. In contrast, the royal family's having a birthday party and a lunch, (laughs) and if you're sick of the family business... And it's fakery, as Anthony Armstrong Jones seems to be. I would see why you would go. He is going out to take pictures. Although, for one brief
1: moment, I was like, is he really? Because he drove right past a polling place. I was like, oh, where is he going then? I thought he was going to take pictures of the election. But hmm. Well, it happens everywhere. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Well, and you see how it happens later on, like what the, uh, the images that he does get.
0: There's a brief shot of footmen moving mysterious parcels around followed by both an art lesson and a political lesson. The music
1: from the last scene blends into this one. They do that a lot in this show, too. The song that is playing is Jack to a King from 1963. It's a Ned Miller. It's a country song, which is kind of weird, juxtaposed to the royal family. It's what's playing while the footmen are stacking up paintings and a painting is coming off the hallway. And the Queen Elizabeth and Philip walk in after breakfast. They have no idea what's going on. They're totally clueless.
0: What is happening? They say mildly to people who are removing priceless artifacts from their walls. And they do recognize the guy in charge. So it's not like complete strangers are in there. (laughs) What's happening? Well, he's removing some pictures for an exhibit he's mounting. um, And these are the candidates that he's chosen. They're packing them up carefully for transportation. That's what he's doing. And (laughs) <laughs> he's trying to explain some of the paintings. Philip has no patience. I don't know who that is. Yeah, I don't know who that is. Artemisia Gentileschi, fans of the History Chicks will know how that is. I don't know who he is, says Philip. She, mm. he does not care. <laughs> he does not care. And we do not see the Artemisia Gentileschi painting in question yet. We do see it later. But the painting in question that is in the Royal Collection is self-portrait as the allegory of painting from 1639. Philip explains, we're not great connoisseurs of art in this family. We're just country people. They have the world's greatest collection all around them at all times. And here's how they view it. It is basically grandpa's old wallpaper. (laughs) Exactly. He says, we're just savages, country people, savages. It's not the word I'd pick. It must be extraordinarily painful for this man. His title is Surveyor of the Queen's Pictures, Sir Anthony Blunt, basically the curator of this museum that no one appreciates. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What is happening? Well, if you're looking
1: at the Artemisia Gentileschi painting, it's a self-portrait of her drawing herself. So how can Philip look at that and think that a man painted it?
0: Because men are all the painters.
1: Uh, Yeah. Okay. That's how. I guess that was a rhetorical question.
0: That is very easy. (laughs) So Philip blusters at this guy weirdly um, when he says, I wouldn't say you're savages. And Philip says, I just did say we're savages. Are you contradicting me? Um, Pee a circle around your authority, Philip. (laughs) Uh, What is your damage? Okay,
1: part of me was like, wow, he's super arrogant. And the other part is, well, if I knew him, I would know that he was joking, like, you know what I mean? Like, he could be, that's his way of joking. You know, some people have a way of joking that doesn't translate well. And that was it. You know, like, if you're listening to it, you're like, that's horrible. I can't believe you're saying it. But the people that know you are
0: like, oh, that's so funny, like, sincerely. Well, luckily, Philip says one more thing eyes right, which I guess he means turn your back, because that's the first thing I would do to somebody that treated me like that is turn my back on them. So, luckily, this guy gets the option to turn his back on him um, because he's going to give his wife a smooch and he wants some privacy. So So the silver lining to this whole scene is at least the Queen Elizabeth and Philip relationship has smoothed out?
1: Yeah, they were joking with each other. They were
0: very, you know, playful in this
1: particular scene. So yeah, I think it has. They're in a good place, unlike her sister. (laughs) Right. So Philip leaves and the other purpose of the surveyor of the Queen's pictures comes into play because the Queen says, well, I'm going to speak at your thing. I think I need to learn some stuff. And she thanks him for being kind and patient with her and not making her feel stupid when he gives her art lessons, which he's about to do, give her a little mini art lesson.
0: Well, he's something of a flatterer and says that she and her mother have good taste and And he explains things quite clearly. And during the conversation, she discovers to her delight that her friend, the conservator, he voted conservative. Oh, so she can speak more freely about her concerns. You know, when you're in a room with people that think like you, you're like, and now the gloves are off. Uh, (laughs) Knowing what we know now from having seen the rest of this show. It's creepy as heck that he adds fuel to the fire of her suspicions about Mr. Wilson. Yeah, she says, "You well, I've heard those rumors, but they
1: can't be real. And he's like, well, I wouldn't dismiss them so quickly. Like, he knows
0: something. I thought it was creepy when I watched it the first time. I was like, what does he know? Why is he doing that? Well, and then he is talking about himself. But, of course, in her mind, he's talking about Wilson. He was a young man. Young men are easily turned. But he's an older man now and hopefully wiser. So there you go. He's literally Mm -hmm. talking about himself. Winston Churchill is watching news reports from his bed when the queen arrives at his house. He actually seems
1: surprised that she's come to visit him. And she just walks in like she's an old friend, which she is. You have to remember, she's known Winston Churchill for her entire life. You know, he's the one that kind of taught her how to be a queen after her father died. You know, he held her hand and walked her through it. So this is a very important man to her. So of course she's going to visit him when he has another stroke and he's in bed. And of course, he's in bed watching the news because that's a big (laughs) deal.
0: (laughs) But what a difference in their relationship. Do you remember when they first met in a formal setting? He did not think it was appropriate to sit in her presence. Mm -hmm. And here we are, him receiving her in his jammies. They've come a long way, baby. (laughs) Yeah, they have. And she tells him not to get up. Not that he could,
1: I imagine. He tried,
0: though. He did try. Yeah, he did get up a little straighter, but he just relaxed really fast, I thought. As they were talking about the news, Elizabeth asked a question about the Board of Trade. And I thought, good job. You're asking pertinent questions. You've come a long way since the first time we saw you and Winston together. And then I felt like, well, isn't that ridiculous? She's been in this job a long time. Of course, she would know to ask. (laughs) Educated questions. (laughs) But I was initially surprised like, oh, well, look at you.
1: (laughs) But he also gives her some uh, fuel for her rumor because he says that he's not excited for the socialists to take over and that when. Wilson was younger, he had suggested that Winston Churchill go to Russia. And Winston Churchill at that moment decided that Wilson needed an eye kept on because, you know, he could just turn at any moment. There was something suspicious about him.
0: Winston would get a, you know, an idea, a bee in his bonnet, and he wouldn't let things go either. So that's probably been percolating for decades.
1: (laughs) And he did go to Russia, him and uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And Stalin all met in Crimea.
0: Well, they were allies during World War II. Mm-hmm. So so it, that doesn't seem out of the realm of, you know, practicality. No, 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 not at
1: all. But he did go to Russia. Oh. That's all I'm saying.
0: So all this protesting when it, is ridiculous kind of <laughs> okay okay that's what i thought but all right <laughs> so she does say something very touching a whole series of touching things to him you have been my guardian angel you're the rock of my head the spine in my back the iron in my heart you're the compass that directed all of us and then this sentence was so well put together where would great britain be without its greatest britain
1: It was so put together and I wouldn't have fallen asleep on it, but then I'm not a 90-year-old man that just had another stroke, which is exactly what Winston Churchill does. He falls asleep on her. And you can just tell by her face that she realizes when she sees him sleeping that this is for real. His days are numbered. And it's just her like at that moment, you know, there's a moment when you're like, oh my gosh, this is going to end and it's not going to be a long time from now. And that's the look on her face. She takes the glasses. He had dropped his glasses on his chest. She takes them off his chest and she leans down and gives him a kiss on his forehead and says, God bless you, Winston.
0: I stand by my statement that in any movie, when someone kisses someone else on the forehead, that means true love. A kiss on the lips, cheap, can be had at every corner bar, but a kiss on the forehead is real. And I don't know if people know that instinctively or by studying people's body language actors come up with this, but that kiss from Elizabeth to Winston Churchill on his forehead is not only goodbye, but it's true love. And I'm going to I like stand by that. I am going to stand with you because
1: that's where you kissed your kid, right? On the forehead,
0: yep. We have a very brief shot of Elizabeth. On the ride home.
1: She's in the car just looking out the window. The radio is on and her face is grim. Now we're driving past, you know, people going about their day and people going to vote. But is she thinking about that or is she just lost in, you know, her pre-grief? for Winston. You can't really tell. However, on the radio, it's talking about how England is not in a very good place. There's recession and there's scandal. And the conservative party, that would be Winston's party, that would not be the new Wilson party. The conservative party is what led them to all of this ruin of the country.
0: So what she sees out the window is likely people voting for the opposite of winston churchill and it is the end of an era in her life too Mm -hmm. tony arrives home to a party and the scene switches back and forth between margaret at the party and tony listening to election coverage as he develops his pictures of the voting so we see him come in (laughs) and um hijinks ensue I love the
1: way that they bring him into this scene. It's just by sounds. You know, there's the motorcycle driving in at night. There's the click as the engine is turned off. There's his footsteps in the hall and a clank of keys on a table. It's just everything is silent except for these one little things that tell a whole story. This guy came home. It's late at night. There's a party going on in the other room. Distance from him. And he doesn't really want to go to it.
0: He has engineered a peephole. Mm-hmm. Between the hallway and the party room It's in a bookcase out here in the hallway And then inside it looks like it's part of a medallion Of some kind So no one inside notices his peeping eye hole <laughs> <laughs> um, And he regards his wife Who is drunkenly singing To a room full of very disinterested people <laughs> You should see the sad, sad golf clap That one of the ladies gives her when she gets done So sad <laughs> Now think back to season
1: one when her father was still alive and her and her father would sit at the piano and she would sing and he'd play. And it was such a thing that they did together. It's just a beautiful thing that they did. And she's just... Devolved into this drunken singing with somebody else plunking away at the piano and she doesn't care She's got a drink in one hand cigarette in the other hand She's singing to a room full of people who are doing exactly the same thing except they're talking to each other And that's what he sees and the first thing that tony says in this whole scene is Jesus christ and he leaves like he doesn't even go towards the party Mm -mm. (laughs) No, no
0: He goes in his dark room and he flicks the red light on and he is in his own world. You can still hear the party in the background. However, he flips on the news. The election returns is what he's listening to while he's developing and printing the photos he has taken um, that day. And we do get a sight of a few of them.
1: There's a sign on windows that say, eat the rich. Board for Harold Wilson that say "People Matters." There's a little girl in what appears to maybe be a tenement or at least a lower income house, kind of flipping a peace sign with her fingers. Just these little images of real Britain with the party going on in his other ear.
0: I am kind of wondering, first of all, about that small child. My husband and I were like, "Is she flipping people off?" Because in Britain, the backwards V is mm-hmm. just like the middle finger. Oh. And the front V was the V for victory. And I'm like, either that little kid is flipping us off. <laughs> I just oh. don't know. I would love oh. for a British person to weigh in. Is the backwards V ever just a simple V for victory? I just don't know. We, we were kind of cracking up because I'm like, our next door neighbor will do that at a party as a joke and, and the V like in motion upward it is not good. You can do it here all day in America, feel free. Oh. But like in England, no, no, don't do it. You're going to get in a fight. So oh. anyway. Um, I'm so I glad you told that. me that before we went to London. <laughs> yeah, because you go around flipping people off all the time. Well, I no, I give peace signs <laughs> it's like, hey, peace, peace. I do that all the time. Well, do it the front way then. I think the back way is where you're like. So the back of your hand is
1: bad. The front of your hand is good. Well, I'm, I'm just going to get out of the habit. I have a
0: few months. That's like remembering not to use okay in Central American countries. Don't do it because it means a hole. <laughs> I had to break myself with that habit. Anyway, also, I want to talk about one of the other portraits. Eat the rich, it says on the window. That is a quote from Rousseau, which actually reads When the people shall have no more to eat, they will eat the rich. It's from the mid 1700s, and that man died. That philosopher died right before the French Revolution and oh, how right he was. So eat the rich is kind of um, vive la revolution, you know, and then the fact that they had to put a sign up that actually said people matter implies that the conservative government thought people didn't matter. hmm. So it kind of makes him see the way the wind is blowing. And sure enough, the Labour Party does win. People will be waking up to a new Britain. The last scene in this, it's the red light of the dark room.
1: He's smoking in the dark room with chemicals, which I don't think is a very safe thing to do, but nobody asked me. But it's a really powerful shot because the room is red and black. He's kind of in silhouette. All of his pictures are hanging up to dry, like in a V pattern almost with him in the middle of it, it's very powerful.
0: So you hear the celebration at the election returns. You also, sort of in the background, hear that party still going on. Like, the common people are celebrating and in the other room, the rich people are basically fiddling while Rome is burning. Yeah. Kind of powerful. (laughs) The new Prime Minister, Mr. Wilson, arrives to meet the Queen. We're still listening to the crowd singing their
1: celebratory song as we see Wilson arriving at Buckingham Palace. And Elizabeth is looking out the window in this room that has no furniture. And I have to wonder if it's the same room. I'm calling it like the observatory or something because they're in this room. There's no furniture. They just look out the window. And they did it in the last season, too. Margaret and Philip and Tony were in that room. Tony was laying on the floor and Elizabeth had ditched London to go to Balmoral and left the city in chaos with her new prime minister pick. And they're all just looking out the window. So it's
0: that same room as far as I can tell. That's probably just a reception room. You don't want to fill that kind of thing full of furniture because people will be milling about before they go into the actual event. It's a very large room, though, isn't it? Don't they have big events? (laughs) I guess so. (laughs) I would say of all the places that might have a big event, you might might be.
1: Yeah, okay. Because
0: it does look like a ballroom in a hotel when there's nothing going on. So he looks... Very nervous as he comes in, like any human would. I just want to say he was described as a very modest man. And I want to read a quote so that we have a little in our heart for him, even though Queen Elizabeth does not because she is prejudiced as heck. Can't believe it. Just think here I am the lad from behind those lace curtains in the Huddersfield house you saw. Here I am about to go see the queen and become prime minister. I still can't believe it. He is like a humble dude and he is he understands that it is an honor to have gotten this, and and random.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very unexpected, and especially by him. <laughs> Because he's he's an insider on his own life, I think. But if you're just watching the scene and you don't know that and you're still thinking, like, is he a KGB agent? Is he evil? Is he against the monarchy completely? You know, what do we think of this guy? Watching the way he's kind of, like, nervous as he's getting his protocol lessons of how to meet the queen— I don't know. It gave me a mixed feeling at the time. I didn't know if he was nervous because he was afraid of being found out or if he was just nervous because he's a human being being told to do things like bow from the neck. And the first time the queen sees
0: you, you call her your majesty. And after that, you can call her ma'am. It rhymes with ham. That guy, the protocol instructor is super mean and he needs to dial it back. (laughs) This is the prime minister, you know, come on now. So I was a little offended at his tone of voice. This is home court advantage, the world's greatest home court advantage, Queen Elizabeth at Buckingham Palace. So she controls that meeting as far as I'm concerned.
1: Oh, I agree. She's in what I called last season the button room. It's a room where she sits and she presses a button and it buzzes out in another office and the person is allowed to come in. She's in another horrendous pink suit. (laughs) Although I think it's a dress with this weird flap that looks like a jacket. I I paused and I looked at it because it was bad. It was pink. It was like this ballet pink. Anyway, so she's in the button room waiting to greet him. He comes in. He does look nervous. He does the things he's supposed to do except he tries to cross his legs and then he thinks better of it and he puts them straight together.
0: (laughs) I felt so I'm like, oh, I'm so sorry. You're so
1: uncomfortable. And but then he starts talking and I'm like, buddy, is that really how you want to open this? Because he is telling her, you know, it's a good thing that I got elected. I know you didn't want me in this position, but your conservatives. They left this country a mess. There's soaring land and house prices. There's race riots. There's sex scandal. There's an 800 million pound deficit, all
0: created by the conservative party. And I have to fix it. That's like his lead. See, I didn't quite take it that way. I I took it to mean like, well, I don't know what to say. And then you just kind of verbal diarrhea, the things that are in your mind. Like, well, I don't know that he was being antagonistic. I think he, I think he was trying to be self-deprecating. I know you'd rather have my opponent. He's more the usual kind of guy. I think he's still feeling nervous. But then mm-hmm. again, I have the advantage of knowing that he was freaking out, that he came from a humble background and there he is about to meet the queen. Here he is though, acting like, he has come from a coal mine. He went to Oxford. He is not a gutter snipe out of a Dickens novel. So he is less a random guy than you and I should think he is. He didn't emerge from the coal mine and and become prime minister.
1: No. And I, you know what, I'm going to agree with you that he does sound at the beginning very humble. And then it just sounds like his um, campaigning speech took over and he was saying all the things that he would have done in his stump speeches for the last however long he was campaigning for
0: and i'm still interpreting that as he's trying to convince her that he's the right man for the job i still think he's like here's the problems and this is what i'm gonna do this is like this is how it was left and i'm gonna climb every mountain you know to get this done so I think I'm interpreting him much more graciously, and I don't know why. Maybe he kind of looks like a hobbit or something. Maybe I'm like really endeared by his appearance or something.
1: Yeah, he's avuncular. I will give you that. You know, just looks like like a good guy, a nice guy you'd be. Meeting at a pub or something. I do want to give her points though because no, she knows what's going on. When she hears about this 800 million pound deficit, she's like, What's your plan? You know, are you gonna go for uh are you gonna go for a devaluing? And he's like, Oh, no, 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 that's not gonna work. We already tried that once. You know, and he tells her why what she's suggesting isn't gonna work, which I thought was good. But then she takes the whole conversation and that whole KGB agent thing is clearly in her mind because she asks some pointed questions questions. It's just, she talks about the death of the man that would have been the candidate if he hadn't died so suddenly, so unexpectedly, so young. You know, she's trying to read his face.
0: (laughs) Just like, you are no agent of MI5. If he is a spy, that is not going to do it. So did you um, kill that guy? Because I heard you did. (laughs) <laughs> no, if he's truly a spy, that was nothing to him. So, good try, though. Also, I was actually still impressed with the proper question Will you devalue? You know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, me too. Me too. So, he comes back with, I think, very reassuring. This is still a great country. The pound is a great symbol. And I love how he brought it to a personal level because to me, what he means by the following is, and you, ma'am, are a great symbol. I think this is what he means by, I bet it was strange to see your face on the coins and the stamps. And that breaks through her armor a little bit. And she tells a little story about the first time she saw her papa on a shilling.
1: Yeah, it did seem like she was kind of starting to share a little bit of herself. As far as the KGB thing goes, I think she's still on the fence.
0: But at least she cracked a little. I thought that was nice. I thought it was nice about that implication. You know, here's Prince Philip, like, he's going to kill us. It's going to be the French Revolution. We're all going to be homeless. And here's this guy implying that he would never do anything to the pound that they did devalue three years later. That's all for the future. Um, <laughs> shh, <laughs> let's not ruin his reputation right now. Let's take a break, everybody. Go refresh your drink, tea, uh, bourbon. I'm going to pour a glass of white wine. You know why? Because the sun's over the yard arm. It is four thirty p.m. <laughs> <laughs> and I've been up since two in the morning. <laughs> And we are back. A uh, formal but tony birthday luncheon is happening at the palace, the one that he completely evaded. That's right. <laughs> he wanted no part of it, so he found other things to do. Whose birthday is it? It's Uncle Henry's birthday, Queen Elizabeth's father's next younger brother. So uh, the Duke of Gloucester is his name. They were very, very close. After her father died, he kind of became yet another substitute father figure to Queen Elizabeth. Had she become queen before she was 21, he was the person that was tapped to become the regent for her. So, uh, her father trusted him with everything. And, um, Mm -hmm. (laughs) although he did say to his two younger brothers, like, look, you, if I have to take this responsibility on, you are no longer gallivanting around like free people. You got to help me. (laughs) And this guy really did take up the the mantle and he kind of, you know, shaped up. (laughs) And so, um, he was a absolutely beloved figure in the household. Mm -hmm. So the fact that they're celebrating his birthday, Totally realistic and good. It's the middle of
1: the day and people are in gowns and dinner jackets and bow ties. That's a tuxedo,
0: right? It's black tie, which is actually not formal. Oh. Yes. We learned that during Manor House. Well, I learned it before, but during the Manor House, the the guy that was pretending to be the upper crust guy actually wore a... Uh, I can't remember if he wore a white tie to a black tie event or black tie to a white tie event and everyone was too well brought up to tell him he looked like a waiter because he had worn the wrong thing. I think he I think it was supposed to be a white tie event and he showed up with a black tie on and everyone's like, "Mm, that's so casual.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So these women are wearing casual gowns. I don't know. I actually really liked Elizabeth's gown here. It was blue and beaded. I thought it was really pretty. Well,
0: and the seating is less formal. It seems to not be arranged. Like, almost maybe everyone kind of sat wherever they felt like sitting. Mm -hmm. Because Queen Elizabeth, well... A, Queen Elizabeth is at the end of the table. The queen Mum seems to be at the end of the table. We can never really see her, but I think that's where she's sitting. And then Queen Elizabeth, our Queen Elizabeth, is just kind of sitting randomly a third of the way down the table. But Philip is right across the table from her. But then Margaret's down near her mother. Yeah, I'm going to go with they can sit wherever they like. Mm-hmm. I think it was supposed to be. You know these people, though. It's like, if you have pajama diamonds, <laughs> then a less formal birthday is going to involve hosiery and a formal gown. <laughs>
1: And <laughs> casual black tie. All right. Okay. <laughs> and everybody's like, they're just chattering about stuff. And Elizabeth is carrying on about how she's just met Wilson. And he's not anything like the other prime ministers. He's not really a statesman. She thinks he's very unremarkable. And the Duchess of Gloucester, who's sitting across from Elizabeth, just kind of laughs and she says, Well, aren't those perfect qualities for a spy? You know, just being unremarkable, which if Elizabeth had been giving away like, all right, so he doesn't work for the KGB. All of a sudden, the Duchess of Gloucester just brought it right back for her because her face just looks super worried. Like, oh, my gosh, he could be a spy. That would be a perfect spy.
0: Well, and she teases her husband. Oh, Henry, isn't that what we used to say about you? No one can remember meeting you because you're so boring or so unremarkable. And look, everybody, watch it again and look at Queen Elizabeth's face right now. She is so uh, worried until he laughs and then she's like oh ha ha," you know but her face looks horrible until her uncle laughs that's her uncle henry the duke of gloucester and he teases his wife right back well it's better than everyone having nightmares after having met you and then everyone laughs (laughs) (laughs) including her there's that that thing again
1: that what i was talking about if you know somebody they have a sense of humor that doesn't translate there's another example of it (laughs) (laughs) but I, i you know that's probably how family parties just are yeah, And then there's Margaret down at the end of the table smoking and drinking and just blathering on about Tony, how he just keeps running hot and cold and mom, aren't you listening to me? And the Queen Mother is like, he doesn't hate you. you know, she's just such a mom. He doesn't hate you, relax.
0: Also <laughs> think she wasn't listening. She's trying to enjoy the party. She's listening to the banter, which is a little bit further down the table than mm-hmm. she can really hear, but she's like smiling amiably. You know, she's just trying to participate in the birthday party. She doesn't be, wanna be dragged down by her daughter, who's just whining about her marriage and not doing anything about it. Well, she yep. did have a good piece of advice. Try not to let him consume you. And easier said than done. You know, especially when you're royalty and you really don't have any official other things to do. But Margaret does not have anything to do. She's no. not using her intellect and and she is obsessing. And I, you know, I think it's pushing him further away. Not that it's her fault. It's just a personality clash. But that was actually secretly a good piece of advice. Try not to let him consume you. But the Queen Mother does not understand her second child at no. all.
1: But she did have another really good piece of advice or just not maybe not advice, but just something to say that might cheer her up. And she reminded Margaret that they were going to be taking a trip to America soon and that nothing will bond a couple like a trip overseas. (laughs)
0: Like being trapped in a vehicle for (laughs) however many hours. (laughs) Oh, I don't know about that being good advice. It's advice, certainly, or a warning.
1: (laughs) It's also probably foreshadowing for further episodes.
0: My husband and I take separate vacations, not because we don't love each other, but because we find joy in different things. So my, I go to Paris with my friend. My husband goes to Cuba with his friend. My Hey, my parents did exactly the same thing for years. They loved it. I think it's really good. I don't know if I'm quite to the point, although I have been to work conferences by myself, but I'm not quite to the point where I want to go on, quote, vacation by myself because I always like to reminisce with somebody after. Like, ha ha, that mm-hmm. waiter was this and the thing. And we saw that people fell down and, you know, we don't want to talk about it after with somebody.
1: Yeah. Like a weekend at Newport touring the mansions I could do by myself. Mm. I'd want to. But something big like that, Paris for two weeks or whatever. Yeah. I got to go with somebody. So not just because I need a person, just it makes it more enjoyable to me.
0: Well, so good aerial shot of Tony coming back in his enviable car. I do (laughs) not know what kind of car that is. I should look that up because it is fabulous. So he arrives home to the remnants of the party. The close-knit family group is still hanging around, talking kind of casually.
1: It must be a birthday party because the room that they're in have balloons so balloons must be a birthday party. (laughs) And they're opening presents. And the Duchess of Gloucester opens a toilet bowl brush. Oh,
0: (laughs) that's exactly what I wanted. You're so funny. (laughs) Well, I think it's hilarious because when you can afford the most expensive diamonds in the world and a tiara is something you throw in a drawer, it's like the clever little white elephant is funnier Mm -hmm. and, and more thoughtful.
1: Yeah, everybody is having fun, except Margaret, who's still brooding. And then when Tony comes in, he just kind of works the room. He's like, hey, Elizabeth, any food left over? I'm kind of hungry and just hugging and kissing everybody. And everybody's excited to see him. And he plops himself down on the floor. He loves the floor. Margaret's just looking at him like daggers are coming out of her eyes. And he's just
0: having fun at the party, coming at the time that he wanted to come, not the time that was dictated to him to come. Look at everyone's face when he comes in. And I will say he is hilarious for having grabbed a balloon and he comes in with helium voice. (laughs) Already hilarious. And then he just sends the balloon off into the room. Everyone's face, even Philip, who is not easily charmed by anyone, is perfectly happy to have this guy in the room. Everyone loves him. He hands the Duke of Gloucester a harmonica for his birthday. That was his present to eat. And the Duke of Gloucester already whoop, doo, 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 starts playing with it. You know, <laughs> it was a great present. Come sit by your wife, says the Queen Mum. Why would I want to do that? I see her every day, he says. See, here's the thing. He doesn't charm Margaret, but he shows his dirty face to Margaret and everyone else just gets the facade. She tries to complain about it. She's like, no, I don't. He's always working or traveling or water skiing.
1: Tony just picks up on that. And he's like super jazzed about it. Oh, yes, that's my new passion, water skiing. And it actually was. He ended up competing in it in water skiing. (laughs) Not bad for a guy who had to relearn how to walk when he had polio.
0: Well, so I actually really like his joy for life. And I just I don't know that they were ever a good match. Mm -mm.
1: No. And this new actor, Ben Daniels, I didn't know anything new he was in except for Rogue One. He was General Merrick in Rogue One. I don't remember. Mm -hmm. I saw a movie. I I wouldn't remember a character's name. Mm -hmm. I was lucky I got the storyline. But I think he's very good in this role. Another seamless transition as far as I'm concerned.
0: And you know what? I'm sorry to say this to the old actor, but I don't 100% know that I would have known it was a different actor. Mm -mm. Nope. So yeah, that one, I I felt like, wait, I should look that back up because I'm not 100% sure he got recast. But yet he did. He did. And we've actually just seen a new queen mom and neither one of us noticed it. I noticed it and she didn't have too big of a part. Mm -mm. So I'm going to hold out my judgment on that recasting. Yeah, I
1: and I didn't know her from anything, although she's been a working actress since 1975. But I didn't. It's all British television. She although she wasn't even in a Doctor Who episode. How can you be a British actor and not be in a Doctor Who episode? I just don't understand it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Is that the threshold? That is. Yeah. (laughs) So uh, Elizabeth gets a phone call. And again, the silhouette by the window as she takes in whatever the caller was telling her. We cannot hear it. I'm going to say it for the third time. The juxtaposition between Winston is dead and happy birthday to you is almost unbearable. I know. Can you imagine listening
1: to the party chatter and the singing and the cakes coming in and you're getting this devastating news on the phone, which is what was happening to her. And we do, we can date it now. It's January 24th, 1965. So we've blended into 65 now.
0: I do want to say a not so fun fact. However, Uncle Henry had a stroke while driving home from Winston Churchill's funeral. He He crashed his car with his wife in it. And he did die some years later, having never really recovered from that stroke. So in the background, though they don't mention it in the show, there's another door closing, yet another father figure gone away forever. Mm -hmm. But just in real life, um, this is the last happy moment for Uncle Henry, too. Yeah, that phone call really changes Elizabeth's life. So now we have scenes from Winston Churchill's elaborate state funeral procession. We're just at the procession right now interspersed with Elizabeth's private grief as she gets ready to go. It's one of those back and forth things that this show does. And I think they do it well. I get
1: dizzy sometimes because they're <laughs> cutting back and forth. In this particular one, Elizabeth is getting dressed. And again, they do another one of those visual things they do a lot. A close-up of her three-strand pearls being put on over her black dress and her hat being put on. And there's just sad music And everything in the Elizabeth's portion of this is kind of slowed down. I'm not saying that she's acting slow. I'm saying the film was slowed down, but not enough that you go it's in slow motion, but enough that you're like, that's a little slow.
0: I liken this scene to someone before a battle in another kind of movie putting their armor on. Yes. You know, the lady's maid is clipping things and placing things, and she has to reconcile what's inside of her, which is just turmoil Mm -hmm. and horrible, to a public face that she has to put on in this very, very formal setting. She's got to get it together. I must say, I went through something very similar when I had to speak at my mother's funeral. So the inside was like, but you have to put on the face for just a while. There's a lot of putting on of other faces. That's another theme that runs through this episode, I think. Mm -hmm. Double-faced. No, I, oh,
1: yes. The other scene that's going on that's cut back and forth is the procession. It's We're getting another one of those aerial views of the procession. There's soldiers and not horses pulling his coffin that's on a caisson. The coffin is draped with his medals. There's a close-up of a camera lens, so you know it's being filmed. And it is, there's pictures and video of this funeral procession and the funeral on YouTube. And there was a really good BBC documentary about his entire funeral. So we do know that it's January 30th, 1965.
0: A long time ago, Winston Churchill had his first stroke, which we did see in season two. That was all kept on the DL. And when Queen Elizabeth found out that that had happened, she wanted the government to plan his funeral on a scale, and I quote, befitting his position in history. And so a long 12-year project of planning his funeral came about. It was called Operation Hope Not. So this grand state funeral that had been pulled off days after his death was no accident. It had been rehearsed and rehearsed. They kept having to replace the pallbearers as he outlived them, Mm -hmm. by the way. So there's a tiny bit of humor in that scenario. And he did not want Charles de Gaulle to come to his funeral. (laughs) <laughs> and was forced to make a compromise. That's funny. I think it's funny that they negotiated with him about that, even though he would not know if Charles Gaulle came. They're like, that would actually be a slap. You should let him come. And he's like, Brah, blah, blah. So, <laughs> so. I bet you he enjoyed being part of that conversation.
1: That seems like a very Winston Churchill thing. This was the first state funeral for a non-royal family member ever. As far as I know, it's the most recent. Yeah. So the way that it's captured in the crown is spot on for how it really looked. People were lining the streets. There's military processions, silence everywhere. I thought they did a great job.
0: Off camera, Winston Churchill had lain in state for three days and 320,000 people came to pay their respects to him. They had to leave that place open 23 hours a day. They, they they left 1 hour for cleaning, but 23 hours a day and it was packed. The line just kept adding to adding to adding to. So many people wanted to pay their respects to a person who had brought them through the great crisis of World War II. I thought that was amazing. Now, unlike the show, in real life there were four men in the procession that did nothing but carry his medals and honors and orders and decorations in the funeral procession. The CIA contacts MI5 about a senior KGB agent, quote, at the top of the British establishment. And so from now on, what we get is scenes of spy action cut into the scenes of Winston's funeral. Not the procession, but the funeral. Just in the interest of clarity, can we talk about The funeral first and then we'll talk about spy stuff because it does go back and forth and back and forth.
1: Yeah, this made me really dizzy. I mean, I, you could follow, you could follow it, but they were pushing it as far as I was concerned with the cutting back and forth. But yes, that's a great idea. They do show the funeral, which was held at St Paul's Cathedral. Um, as pointed out in that BBC documentary, begins talking about how Winston Churchill had made sure that St Paul's Cathedral was still standing, or at least part of it, during the war. He was very concerned about it because it was a symbol for you know the the country was St. Paul's Cathedral, and that's where his funeral was held. Oh, God, I'm all, I'm all tingly.
0: <laughs> At the funeral, though we don't see it in the show, you should know that Queen Elizabeth II broke protocol and precedent, and she allowed Winston Churchill's family to come in last, after her. As a sign of respect for Winston Churchill, because normally the queen arrives and therefore the event can begin. I'm kind of sad we didn't see that, but maybe that was too hard to convey just by a photo because maybe we don't recognize Clementine enough to let that, Mm -hmm. you know, like, so, so anyway, I just want you to know that that's how much she valued him. Right. And so in the funeral, what we do see
1: is Wilson arriving and talking to the Russian delegation and Elizabeth is just eyeballing the whole situation, like, what is he doing? You know, instead of concentrating on what was in front of her, she's distracted by the fact that her new prime minister is chummy with the Russians on the other side of the aisle.
0: I think we're a smart audience. We are supposed to infer this guy's Russian. We don't know. We see the insignia, but we don't know what that is. You know, I, I mean, I know because I looked it up and I know who this guy actually even is. This is the premier of the Soviet Union, the second in command over there. His name is Anastas Mikoyan who had also the year before represented Russia at the funeral of JFK. Jackie Kennedy admired him. He was largely seen as maybe the only moderate voice in the Soviet government at the time. So of all the Russians to be afraid of, this wasn't the guy, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) Uh, uh, Anyway, even if he was, you know, doing more than just a passing talk to him. And Olivia Colman does a great I don't know what to call it, deep grief and shock here. Among all the pageantry, it's just all an inner world.
1: I agree. And, you know, I had seen an interview with her where she talked about for a while, she just thought she was just doing Claire Foy doing the Queen. Right. I didn't see that at all. I mean, maybe they shot the whole season out of order and we just don't see it. But I never saw that. I don't think once that she looked like she was imitating Claire Foy.
0: I almost think that was a gracious thing for someone to say. You know what I'm saying? That's a oh, gracious thing mm-hmm. for an actress to say. That's true. Because I really didn't see it either. Well, good for her. I'm more and more impressed by her. Even though in Fleabag, she was quite horrible. <laughs> <I didn't care laughs> but she was wonderful at being horrible. No, you're right. You're right. You're right. Yeah.
1: You're the one that told me to watch that show. And I had watched the, like, the first episode. and I was like, really? And then somebody else said to watch it. So I went on and I was really glad I did. It you really have to episode. kind of
0: push on to season two. I would say season two is where, I mean, just... Just do the preliminary while you're doing laundry folding or something. And then by season two, you're like, you know, you're glued to the screen.
1: Yeah, I'm invested in all these characters' lives. Yeah, (laughs) she deserved all those Emmys that she won.
0: So moving on to what I have written down as spy stuff, which is more serious than just spy stuff. There is an interaction between MI5 and the CIA. The director of MI5 is doing his paperwork or whatnot. And someone comes in and says, the director of the CIA is on the phone, sir. I'll call him later. That's how casual <laughs> that is. Like, you know, CIA is calling like he does every day. I'm just going to call him later. Oh, oh, oh no, sir. He's calling on Juliet. And that's evidently the the holy shit line. <laughs> because he gets up immediately and pushes several buttons and take this takes this call. The CIA tells him a guy has turned himself in as a Russian operative in America because, you know, because there's yellow cabs. <laughs> That's a little visual clue for you and me. And his information revealed a, quote, high-placed KGB operative in the British establishments. We'll deliver Michael straight to the UK. And so you see him being delivered. I like that shot where you have the, the plane over the little fields. I thought it looked cool. Mm-hmm. It didn't really do anything to punctuate the scenes or just divide them, but it was kind of cute. In reality, Michael Strait
1: was, he was a college student in Cambridge. He had been received into the Communist Party when he was in college in the 30s. Then he went on as an American. He was in the Army. He was flying planes. And he was offered a job in Washington at about the time that this is happening. And he knew that they were going to do a background check. And then he knew that when they did the background check, they were going to find out that he had this connection to the communists. So he did turn himself in and confess to it, you know, up front, rather than going through all the rigmarole of an investigation. So this all really, really happened. Mm. Mm -hmm.
0: The director of MI5, after all this investigation, decides that he has to go speak to the Queen. It has reached that level. It's a senior person. I must go speak to the Queen. So he arrives there and drops a bomb.
1: His name is Furnival Jones. Now, I did not ever hear the name Furnival before, but he is the—he's <laughs> a the director of MI5. Uh, there is an MI6, and one is the FBI. He's like the FBI, and the other is the CIA. That's the difference between five and six—international okay. or national. So, what does one, two, three, and four do? I, I get coffee. I don't know. <laughs> those those are the super super secret ones. I don't know. That's where James Bond works. Oh. Hi don't know. (laughs) Um, So Mr. Furnival Jones arrives at the button room. He's in the button room. Elizabeth's there. She's wearing a blue suit. And she greets him. And he tells her that he has this information about someone at the top of the British establishment that is a mole for the Russians. And before he could even name this person, Elizabeth's like, oh, so it's true.
0: Oh, it's true. One heard the rumors. And now that I've been with him personally in close proximity, I have developed my own suspicions. And he seems, look at his face relieved that she already knows. Like, he doesn't have to be the one to tell her. He has just <laughs> been <laughs> sleepless at night for no reason. And then they have what I call a threes company conversation. You have to Google it if you're younger. Comic knock on Yes. Yeah, so they always in that show had conversations where somebody misheard a word and then hijinks ensued and it was a whole 27 minutes worth of comedy based on that. And then at the end, they're like, oh, wait, you said blah, blah, blah. Never mind. So that's kind of how this conversation goes. He explains that they're just going to have to let it be, kind of, that it's a giant embarrassment for the country and they're just going to have to let it ride, as is now that they know they can isolate his information or whatever. And she is shocked. We are going to have a Russian spy in Downing Street? And that's when he realizes that he did have something to worry about
1: because he does have to tell her. We did hear those rumors, ma'am. Harold Wilson was attempted to be recruited by the Russians several times, but none of them panned out. We have absolutely no evidence that says that he is with them and we cleared him a long time ago, which, if you recall, is what Elizabeth said when she was having breakfast with Philip.
0: If your chum knew about this name, I'm sure MI5 knew and they would have handled it. And they did. The end. She's right. Philip's wrong. (laughs) wow, a conspiracy theorist wrong? Huh. (laughs) (laughs) But then he has to deliver mm, the knife to her heart. It's actually Sir Anthony Blunt, your surveyor of paintings, ma'am. And it really strikes her in a way that I can't even imagine. So this guy that she has felt so close to has felt like has been so kind to her and so patient and such a really good friend for as far as she has friends, has betrayed the country over and over and over for a number of years.
1: Fifteen years he was a KGB mole. He passed over 2,000 documents onto the KGB.
0: Now, I will say as far back as 1948, do you remember Mr. Lassels, who we called Mustache from season two? Mr. Lassels used to introduce that guy to people as, and here's our Russian spy. (laughs) In the 40s. So I am interested to know, it's too late to ask Mr. Lassels, but why did he do that? (laughs) Before she was even the queen. Yeah. How did Philip not get a wind of that? Nobody talks to Philip. He's the placeholder. (laughs) (laughs) So part of his, I don't even think it was a defense, but part of what he said was, well, it's really just German secrets that I was passing. I didn't pass British secrets. But the thing is, after the war, the British were very, very nervous about opening up to the Russians. I mean, they hurried and got all that artwork ahead of the Russians. They were not confident that the Russians were going to stay allies. And so after the war, all that information got seized, sucked back into Britain. You don't want the Russians knowing the German stuff because they're not always going to be our friends. And his whole defense was, well, it was all German stuff from Bletchley Park that we worked so hard for years, (laughs) many overnights to get, and you just handed it over to people who are now not necessarily our friends. So it was not a good defense. Mm Mm-mm. No. So the surveyor of the Queen's picture, Anthony Blunt, is giving a speech, a very pointed speech, which is interrupted by the law. (laughs) This lecture he's giving
1: is about paintings that are being shown on slides behind him. He's giving an art history lesson. And the things he's saying, uh, they played their hand too heavy here as far as I'm concerned. Paintings are able to hide things that can't Fully be understood truths are revealed paintings seem full of hidden intentions and multiple meanings and he's bringing up all these paintings behind him that in talking about you know what the painting actually means and he's saying things like be patient the truth will be clear and the MI5 guys are coming into this hall where he's giving this lecture
0: He sees them. He sees their silhouettes, more silhouettes, taking up positions at every exit. But like a true professional, he proceeds. He really, really focuses on the painting that is behind him at the time that we see him. We're at the end of the lecture. And it's probably the, you know, the most famous, the most glorious painting, The Allegory of Truth and Time by Karachi from 1585. Carry my writing. So let's call that 1585.
1: <laughs> it's also from the beginning of the show because um, they showed it in the hallway and Philip asked who painted it. So we've yes. seen this painting before. We know. We know this guy.
0: I looked up this painting and it's actually surprising how often Truth in a well, always a naked woman, or in a cave, it's surprisingly a common theme for paintings and sculptures. She was tricked into a well by deceit and saved by her father, Time. And that maybe this goes back to like the second century as a parable or an allegory. And then maybe where we get the phrase, the naked truth. Isn't that interesting? Because she's always naked, I assure you. And of course, my, my skeptical side is like, oh, that's a way to get a naked lady on your wall in a legitimate way, because that's, that's a parable from the second century. And here she is with her
1: situation
0: hmm. all the forefront. But anyway, so trapped by truth is deceit blah blah blah. You're right heavy-handed and they keep hammering home that time Will unmask all deceit time and he says it like seven different ways right in a row And that's kind of what you do in a speech anyway So I kind of see you know and in conclusion Blah 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 blah, blah. but he knows the jig is up. Maybe he's just trying to make it last longer. I don't know (laughs) Or you know what something else occurred
1: to me. Maybe he's trying to cover his tracks like maybe he's like not the mole anymore he's not passing information and he's trying to say that the truth will come out that i don't do this anymore the last thing he says is deceit is two-faced which means that i could be telling you something that's a lie i couldn't be telling you something you know what i mean mm-hmm. i don't it, it for me it made me think oh Okay, so he's
0: definitely a KGB agent, but maybe he's feeling remorseful. I I think in about five minutes, we're going to discover he's not. (laughs) (laughs) However, that is a very good theory for the first watch through. So Queen Elizabeth and Philip exposition us through the cover-up.
1: They are getting dressed to go to that painting exhibition, the one that Blunt put together, the one that she has to talk at. And she has to say nice things about him because he did this wonderful show. And she knows that she really wants him to be thrown in jail and the key tossed away. And Philip wants him to be executed. And they both hate this guy. But now they have to go to this thing and put on their face again. Ooh, deceit is two-faced. And they have to put on their public face
0: and give this speech. And Philip sees her distress. And unlike season one and two he understands the hardships of her duty. He doesn't have to like it, but he understands why she has to do it. There's a little exposition that talks about what was hinted at earlier, that it would embarrass the country. They're already on shaky ground with the Americans, which I happen to know is going to be explored in another episode. So we're not going to go into that. But um one more slip up of this nature. And the Americans are going to be like, turning you off, cutting you off of information. You can't be trusted, blah, blah, blah. So we got to keep this to ourselves. And it's not a matter of just embarrassing the security services. It's actually safety for the country as a whole to keep getting this, you know, intelligence from the Americans. So they're kind of forced into it.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, and I did want to talk about I was a little concerned because they came out and it seemed to me at first that Prince Philip offered her his arm and mm-hmm. she didn't see it. And I played it back a couple of times and I think he might just be buttoning his vest. Yeah, but what I what I thought. I read deeper meaning into it for quite a few times. <laughs> <laughs> well, one of the texts, because we, we were watching this in different
1: places and we we're kind of texting back and forth a little bit. And she's like, I want to talk about the decline of his arm on the way out. And I'm watching it. I'm like, he's buttoning his coat, but OK. <laughs>
0: Elizabeth gives her own pointed speech at the art exhibition. The exhibition
1: is being held in Guildhall. It was built in the 1400s, and I couldn't understand why she was in this modern room in a very old-looking building, but it turns out that there was a new addition that was begun in 1960, so they would have had some areas finished by the time that this exhibition would have happened. So it
0: probably she- smelled like new wood and paint in there. It probably
1: did. She's in the center of a hallway. There's people packed in above her on the next floor. People packed down the stairs. People packed around her. And she's giving this speech. Phillips on one side. The spy blunt is on the other side. And she's having to gush about
0: his brilliance. Look behind Queen Elizabeth in the right-hand corner facing you. There is the Artemisia Gentileschi. Oh, thank you. It's in the corner. It's there. They made it. Yay. So she mentions a lot of things in her speech. There are catchphrases that we catch. Art of investigation unlocks secrets. The portrait she was very taken with was the one which turned out to have another portrait lurking beneath the surface. And I thought this was kind of good writing, but I can see how it would be like another case of too much. Mm Mm-hmm. Yes. She is taken with that picture. Another person underneath. Not, in fact, he says, Mr. Blunt. Not another person. Uh, often, an artist would paint someone and they would be asked to paint a more flattering version of the same person on top of the old one. So, not two different people. But- yes, two different people, she said. The idealized version, which is real, which you want to see as real, and the less desirable that you really are all hidden away. And yeah, there's some eye uh, acting there. And they decide the word they're looking for is pentimento. And she settles on that, whatever, moving on, none of us will be able to trust or look at anything in the same way ever again. The picture they're talking about is that picture the Rembrandt from before, an old man in military costume. This is where the timeline jumps a little because this painting was x-rayed to find that out in 1968, which is a little Mm -hmm. after our timeline. However, they discovered there was another figure underneath and did it mean anything? Did it not mean anything? Recent studies have shown that it is a figure that is painted in fact, upside down from the guy and is probably just a spare canvas that didn't turn out and he reused it. It probably doesn't mean anything. Mm. It's not, it genuinely isn't the same person and it genuinely is completely different and upside down. So the metaphor may actually be more apt than chance. (laughs) So so that actually was very interesting to me. Two kinds of artistic license on that one. (laughs) And of course the audience applause, applause, you know, they don't know. Philip applauds. (laughs) but looks at Sir Anthony like I will kill you (laughs) on his way
1: out. And I think that Philip and Elizabeth uh, do what royals, I suppose, can do very well. And they just dusted the guy. They just turned and walked away. They wanted no part of being in his orbit anymore. And he's just like awkwardly standing there like, oh, no, now what am I supposed to do?
0: <laughs> so I loved how Elizabeth meets up with Harold Wilson and apologizes to him for misjudging him. And they have a lovely conversation.
1: They do. I love this, too. First off, Blent is um far away, getting his picture taken and talking to the press. And the queen and the prime minister are off by themselves in another area. They're not even anywhere near the circus. And she said, I'm so glad you came so I can apologize in person. And he asked her for what? And she said, there's no need to understand, but I did misjudge you terribly. And I would like to take this opportunity to say sorry. That was so simple.
0: Why can't people do that? (laughs) I thought it was very good. And then he regrouped a little, like, "Huh, okay." And you know he's going to be wondering about that like forever. By the way, (laughs) but that's okay. He keeps that all inside. And he mentions that he he's not an art guy. She's also not an art girl. We've discovered that earlier. So there's a matter of some commonality. He is more comfortable with numbers. They never lie to you. They're honest. There's no mystery. There's no allegory. There's no interpretation. What you see is what you get. And she's very relieved.
1: Yeah, I think this was a turning point for their relationship. So that was good. I'm glad she got to apologize. She felt better and he softened. They both softened and they bonded and they can go forward now.
0: In real life, evidently after Winston Churchill, this man, Harold Wilson, was her favorite of all her PMs. Mm -hmm. If that's a spoiler alert for this season, I don't really know because I haven't seen it all. (laughs) I love seeing the beginning of friendships in movies Like not even relationships necessarily, but, you know, just the beginning of friendships, how you meet someone at your kid's elementary school or just a random encounter in a coffee shop is a lifelong friend or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And I um, so I feel like we have just witnessed the beginning of a real big thing. Yeah. No, I think
1: there's a lot to be learned about that one little scene. All of us can learn things from that, like to apologize to people when you do things badly and that you misjudge someone doesn't affect the rest of your relationship with them how many times in your life do you meet someone and you're like, oh, I'm so not going to like her. And then you start talking and you're like, she's my favorite person in the whole wide world. You know, it just changes. So I, I love that they showed that so well in this episode in that one
0: little scene. Conversely, Prince Philip and old Anthony Blunt do not have a lovely conversation.
1: No. Blunt gets called upstairs because Philip wants to talk to him. And Philip's standing at the top of the steps and he's got a drink in his hand and he just looks like he's so mad. Blunt gets up there. They stand side by side. To anybody looking at them, it would look just like two chaps chatting. But the truth is that Philip is telling him how much he despises this man. He has the close-up face of looking like he stepped in dog poo and he wants Blunt to quit. He thinks it's the honorable thing to do so they don't have to live in the same house. And he threatens Blunt with jail. If if he sees him
0: do anything that's not correct. But Blunt is going to get the last word again. He has something in his back pocket. (laughs) Many things in his back pocket from season two. (laughs) During the Perfumo sex scandal, there were rumors that a member of the royal family was involved in that giant nefarious affair. And there had been some pictures of Prince Philip in the sketchbooks, and some unnamed man had removed them all. Turns out we know that guy, and it is Sir Anthony Blunt, who probably did it out of an honorable motive. I'm just saying, I don't think he thought ahead, like, one day I'm going to hold this over his head. But you know, you never know, Russian spies, how they're going to think. But maybe it was like, (laughs) two-faced. <laughs> this could yeah. be helpful this way, or I could save his honor. We'll see how he turns out as a man. Um, And he's just discovered how he turns out as a man. He's a shark that is going to bite me. Fair enough. Let me just show him that I have these things. And negotiations come to a crashing halt. <laughs> Let's just put it that way. Yeah,
1: it doesn't really turn out the way Philip had imagined when, when he's walking up the stairs. No,
0: it turned out to be kind of a checkmate when he thought it was going to be, you know, a grand slam. Mm. Nope. Nope. <laughs> I'm like, you're mixing games here. What are you doing? <laughs> but you know what? Because I'm not a sports fan. So I feel like it all falls under the banner of sporty things. <laughs> okay. so, so to me, categorically, all those metaphors aren't mixed because they fall under a delightful umbrella. <laughs> Speaking of umbrellas. <laughs> oh, but, but honestly, didn't do that on purpose. Uh, we, <laughs> we see Sinister Sir Anthony coming back to Buckingham Palace, where he lives, lest we forget. And Queen Elizabeth is watching him out the window. I have to say, cinematography here, I'm doing that Italian gesture where you kiss your two fingers and then you give it to the air. Chef's kiss. Yes. Yes. Yes.
1: Yes. So dark. It's raining. He's shown like, again, in silhouette. She's up in the observation room again, just watching him, just like throwing daggers out of her eyeballs at him while he walks across the courtyard to his apartment because he lives in the same house. And it's just, yeah, it's just there's just rain. There's no dialogue. She looks at him. He looks up at her. He can obviously see her in the window, and he goes inside. And we go back to Elizabeth. She's in this room, this empty room. These very tall, ornate drapes surround her and make her look really small. And the only thing you hear is the sound of rain. As we have this one, it's not a still; it's a moving picture because there's, you know, the audio is moving too. It's rain, but she doesn't move. Nothing happens, and that's how the episode ends with just her and silhouette again against a window very dramatically.
0: And then we see three title cards that come up. Sir Anthony Blunt was offered complete immunity from prosecution. That's the first one. The second one, he continued as the surveyor of the Queen's pictures until his retirement in 1972. Card number three, the Queen never spoke of him again. With a very incongruous end music which I totally approve of (laughs) it it was just one of those things which I think is the Frank Sinatra version of that song which is Mm -hmm. kind of like snappy like we want to snap our fingers it was just one of those things you know so hilarious (laughs) but I'm the one that put a barbershop quartet singing taking a chance on love at the end of our Henry VIII episode so I understand the impulse it is really powerful I appreciated Um, it too. That's for sure. I would like to offer a little follow-up on the Sir Anthony Blunt story. He got his title stripped from him in 1979, which is you know, way past our time period in this episode. It was Margaret Thatcher that outed him. In her zeal to make all secrets public, she thought, why are we holding this? Let's just let it go. Why, Mm -hmm. Why have the stress? Let it go. Let him... Face his repercussions. We're not going to protect those people anymore. And society absolutely rejected him. So there you go. The group he was with were called the Cambridge Four or the Cambridge Spies. And there is a four part miniseries on a very sketchy, I'm talking only watch on your Apple product in case of viruses. (laughs) Don't put it on your laptop uh, on YouTube. um, All four parts of this miniseries are on YouTube. I would love to find you a more legitimate source for this movie, so we'll keep looking throughout the season to see if I can find it. It's from 2003. It was on, I want to say, BBC Two, starring the same actor as Sir Anthony. Huh interestingly and produced by Gareth Neame who also produced Downton Abbey. So it has a good <laughs> a good staff behind it, but it opens up with this card. This is the story of the most notorious double agents in the history of spying. Cool. So the information they passed was very 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 sensitive and the fact that Philip wanted him shot was probably not out of bounds in the, in mm-hmm. that case. Nope.
1: And he had given a final testimony that legally could not be read in public until 25 years after his death. He died in 1983. He was 75 years old. But the testimony wasn't released to the public until 2009. So I can link you to an article that talks about that testimony.
0: You can watch the entire funeral of Winston Churchill on British Pathé, also on YouTube. Not sketchy. (laughs) on any device you have. Also, why not go check out the London Zoo Aviary because it's an easy click and that is something that Lord Snowden was designing during this episode.
1: The Court Jeweler website, they had an article already posted about all the jewels that were in season one and season two. The woman that runs it is usually right on the ball with the crown information. So I'm going to link you up to that website. It's great for finding out the names of all the jewelry and the histories of them. I, I really love that one.
0: You can see everything that is held in the Royal Collection, one of the finest art collections in the world. Royal Collection Trust at rct.uk. So we'll provide you a link to that. And last but not least, we at The Recapery also covered the entirety of season two of The Crown. So if you are a person that is just getting into The Crown or wants to go back, I suggest that you listen to our recaps. We are pretty proud of them. We think we delved into great historical detail and hope that you will think so too. So please also follow the History Chicks and listen to us on our other main podcast. We have covered the other Queen Elizabeth, Mm -hmm. as a matter of fact, and a character that is coming up Wallace Simpson appears in a later episode of The Crown and we have a two-parter on Wallace Simpson. So there are some hooks that you can use to get into the other show directly from The Crown. Thank you for listening. Thank you for finding us. It has been a day (laughs) (laughs) trying to get this ready. Thank you so much for listening and we will see you soon for episode two. Bye! Thank you.